Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. More than anything else that the church does or is in practice, the Lord's Supper, ladies and gentlemen, is holy ground. It is holy ground because of what it represents. The Lord's Supper. Most of us probably think we know what it's all about. The church has been observing the Lord's Supper for 2,000 years. But because of our familiarity, there can be the potential to approach it without the reverence it deserves. In a culture that is becoming increasingly casual, we need to be reminded that there is nothing casual about the Lord's Supper. It is holy ground. This thing that we do is not a ritual. It is holy ground because of what it represents. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our series entitled Crossroads, Pastor Clay is walking us through the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul has a stern word and a sober warning for the church in Corinth in regards to its practice of the Lord's Supper. And what is it that is so serious? Paul knows that there is division within the church, but this is different. Essentially, I think a modern translation would essentially would be Paul saying, I can't believe that you've even managed to find a way to fight over the Lord's Supper. His warning to them is a timely word for the church today. While some people see the Lord's Supper as just some tradition or ritual to be practiced, God sees something very different. Let's get started. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Don't ever miss that part. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, 
so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Father, today, uh, as we dive into this, what really is a very serious uh, passage of Scripture, I pray for clarity. Uh, I pray for wisdom. I pray that you would uh, just use me uh, as your messenger boy to deliver today the message that would speak truth into the lives of each person in this place and each person who may listen or watch this message later, Father God. I pray for all of those who are here and those who are not able to be with us today. Many are traveling. Perhaps some are sick. Father God, in each case, I pray for you to meet us where we are, to take us to where you want us to be in our relationship and walk with you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There should be unity above all. That's how Paul jumps into this thing. It's interesting that, uh, that as, you, as, you, as we make this turn and say, and, we, and if you're here in the previous three weeks when we were walking through that 1 through 16, you know what that was all about. But as, we, as it get, clearly begins to make a, a turn in verse 17 in, in a new direction to a new subject matter, uh, the text takes on a very serious tone to it, I think. The text takes on a very serious tone. Not that the earlier part of the chapter was not serious. But in that earlier part of the chapter, Paul actually opens that part uh, by, by commending, by praising the Corinthians for the fact that, that, that in some areas or in many areas of his instructions, they were following him. They were trying to do what he was asking them uh, to do. But then in verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. In other words, in what I'm about to say, I... I in, in moving into this new instruction, I do not praise you. And, and if the, if the, as if the one uh, kind of scolding is not enough, he even repeats it again in verse 22, where he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So uh, Paul is, is changing his tone. He's moving into something that has to do with with something that is, is very serious and that, that requires that he say essentially what Paul, I believe, is saying there is, hey, this is serious, y'all. He may not have said y'all, but he said, this is serious, y'all. This is serious. All that other stuff, all the, all the misunderstandings, all the squabbles, all the things that you've asked for clarity for, yes, that's important and all that stuff needs to be deal, dealt with, but this, this is serious. And what is it that is, that is so serious? What is it that has, has caused Paul to, to start off by saying, man, I, I, what I'm about to instruct you about, I, am not, I want you to know I am not praising you about. It is the fact that uh, there, there, are, there are differences, there are problems within the context of the Lord's Supper. Specifically, when they were coming together for the Lord's Supper. So he says... There, and let me just read it to you again in verse uh, 18 and 19. It says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now we know, if you've been to half of this series, if you've shown up on half of the Sundays of this series, we know that the Apostle Paul knew that he already knew there were squabbles and problems and divisions within the church. He, he, he opens the letter 
discussing a division between them. Remember, oh, some say I'm of this, some say I'm of this person, some say I'm of this. He opens the letter with that. And throughout the letters, we've made our way through 1 Corinthians. We've seen all these different issues that have come up uh, in, in, throughout the letter that were causing divisions, calling, causing problems within the church. So Paul knows that there is division within the church. But this is different. So when Paul says there in, in the latter part of verse 18, and in part, I believe it, essentially, I, I think a modern translation would essentially would be Paul saying, I can't believe that you've even managed to find a way to fight over the Lord's Supper. I can't believe that you've managed to bring all your problems and differences and divisions and squabbles, that you've managed to bring that right in to the Lord's Supper. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord's Supper, uh, possibly more than anything else that the church does or is in practice, the Lord's Supper, ladies and gentlemen, is holy ground. It is holy ground. It is holy ground. Because of what it represents. Because of what it represents. This, this thing that we do here today is not a ritual, but it's real important. It's pretty clear uh, historically that in the early days of the church, the practice of what we call the Lord's Supper varied in its frequency. In other words, there were some churches that conducted or, or held the Lord's Supper every time they met together. And there were other churches that did it not quite as frequently. They did it from time to time. But what also developed about this, or, or did develop in the same time, was something that came to be known as the love feast. The love feast was simply as the church gathered together as they, as they came together, they would share a meal together. Each one would bring what they had from home and they would share a meal together. And out of, after, as they shared or after they shared that meal together, they would take some of the elements from what they had brought from the love feast and they would use those elements to then uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. Remember, there, there were... There, there were no stores back then where you could go and buy those little crackers, you know, that just had everything. There were, there were no stores that sold these, these convenient little uh, plastic cups, you know, that you could just, there wasn't that. The Lord's Supper consisted of the elements that the people brought, that the people had themselves, and they brought from home. They brought uh, together to the church, and so they would share this, this meal together before they took the Lord's Supper, and it was a beautiful thing because it displayed the, the unity that, that the that this thing that Christ did for us and what the Lord's Supper should represent. It, 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 it pictured this, this fact that I'm, not, uh, that I'm coming together with others and I'm sharing together with others and, and what Christ did for me brought us together and made us brothers and sisters in Christ and, and what Christ did, his sacrifice, uh, I'm giving to others and they're giving to me. It, 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 was this, it was a beautiful thing or should have been a beautiful thing. But that's not what had happened. And so, Paul says, uh, he, he's holding nothing back, basically. When he comes to verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Paul says, you may say you're coming together for this, for this wonderful uh, spiritual picture. You may say you're doing this for the Lord's Supper, but that's not why you're doing that. That's not what this is about. You've made... a Essentially, I'm reading between the lines. Paul says, you're, you've made a mockery 
of the Lord's Supper. Because you had, you had different people from different backgrounds, right? And you had, you had wealthier people who perhaps had, had more to bring, that could bring more. You had poor people that perhaps didn't have as much to bring. Plus, they, the, quite honestly, many of the poorer people probably arrived later to the event because their time was not their own. They worked for somebody else. Maybe they were a servant in someone else's home. And by the time that they showed up, the people that had already there or the people that may have had more, they're, they're there. And when they got, they got hungry, they, they, just, they just started to eat and eat and drink to excess. So by the time the, the, the less well-off people, by the time the poor people or the servants or the whoever, by the time they got there, there wasn't even enough for them to eat. So they went hungry while the other people were, were, were stuffed and drunk. And I listen, I'm telling you, you can hear the astonishment in Paul's words. When he, says, when he says this, what, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Let me paraphrase. Are you kidding me? You're about to say, oh, we're coming together for the Lord. No, you're not. You're using this as an excuse to, to indulge your flesh and, and to be self-centered and to, to fill your bellies and to do all this kind of stuff. Do you not have houses that you can stay at home and do that? Or... Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And there it is again. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. They made a mockery out of this thing by the conduct because they, they had this place, this, this holy ground, because of what it represents, this holy ground, they had brought in their self-centeredness and their, and, and, and their flesh and their carnality. They brought all of that into the situation and, 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 and Paul's dealing with it. And by the way, it, it comes clear and we'll see it again in a minute. God is dealing with it to such an extent that he's taking people out as a result of what they had brought onto holy ground. This beautiful thing that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be should communicate to each and every one of us, to the Corinthians, to the church down the street, to to cross-culture church, should communicate to every single one of us that regardless of, of social standing or ethnic background or skin color or financial status or educational level, that regardless of any of that, all of us share the same situation. That, that's part of what brings us together. That's part of what makes us the same. All of us share the same situation. Shall I remind you? Thanks. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. No matter how wealthy, no matter how poor, no matter how young, no matter how old, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is there anybody left out of that? No, there's not. See, we all shared the same situation. We all shared the same destination. We were all sinners deserving of and hell bound, heading toward the same destination, hell itself. All of us. But praise God, all of us share the same Savior. Praise God for that. Look at this passage. In uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, maybe you've heard of this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, that, that's what brings us together regardless of, well, boy, they're kind of weird or, or why do they do that or how come their hair is like that? I don't, it does, all of us 
We're in the same situation. All of us share the same. All of us who know Christ as our Savior share the same Savior. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Above all, there should be unity in this, in, in this place, in this thing that we call the local body, a church. There should be unity, people coming together for the good of the body of Christ. Bless you. And when we come together, when we do life together, when you rub shoulders with your brothers and sisters in Christ, friction is sometimes created. It's just going to happen. And God is glorified not when we, not when we leave a, a, a church because this person did that or that person acted that way or I didn't like the way. That God is glorified when we leave the problem, when we leave whatever it is that's causing an issue between me and my brother or me and my sister, that we leave that and we love the brother and sister in Christ because God's glorified when, when he takes precedent over whatever in my life. That there should be unity above all within the body of Christ. And, and sometimes a person says, well, that's, that's, why I, that's why I don't do a whole lot of stuff with the church. You know, I'll show up on Sunday, but I don't do a lot of the, the, you know, the stuff that, you know, when y'all get together and y'all do the socials and stuff, I just try not to, to do too much of that because too much potential for stuff to happen. I, I'm not, I don't do the youth group. I don't, I don't do the life group. There's just too, too much chance for that. But, but come on, is that really, is that a picture of the unity that we're called to? No, it's this thing that binds us together that should create unity even above and beyond our differences that we have. Unity for all. And the second one that Paul addresses is this. There should be, there is the cross for all. Listen to what he says in verse 23. Y'all okay? Y'all with me? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you this is in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes yes uh, uh, unity should be should be a display uh of the lord's supper should even be a product of the lord's supper but the the focus ultimately of the lord's supper is the sacrifice of our savior that's ultimately the focus of the lord's supper that it's 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 the cross that's the picture that is here that before us today it's the cross it is the cross for all as the old saying goes all ground is level at the cross it's all the same. All of us in need of the same Savior. All of us finding salvation in the same Savior. All found at that same place. That, that one place that all can and all must go to for salvation. To have a relationship with God. They must go to the cross. And the Lord's Supper, as much as anything that we do, pictures that exact event. It's not a, it's not a ritual. It's not a tradition here's what it is the lord's supper is a memorial to the cost that's what the lord's supper is it's a memorial to the cost now memorial most of y'all know this but a memorial is is something that is to remind people of what a certain person did at a certain time at a certain place 
That's essentially what a memorial is intended to do. To, to, to ensure that people never forget a certain someone did a certain something in a certain place. Well, for us, that place in the Aramaic is Golgotha. It's the place of the skull. In Latin, it's, it's Calvaria. We just call it Calvary. But it, what we call it is not nearly as important as what we remember that happened there. And first, you and I need to remember who. We need to remember who it is that did this. Paul receiving these instructions about the Lord's Supper, by the way. Paul receiving these instructions about the Lord's Supper. Apparently, from the Lord himself. If you look at this up, or if you, you may remember this, in Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul says that he did not, after he came to Christ, he did not initially consult with flesh and blood. In other words, he didn't initially go and learn, you know, that, that he went and spent three years out in the desert in Arabia, apparently being schooled by Jesus himself. And so these, these instructions that he's receiving, he says that he received him himself from the Lord. I was telling the group as we were praying this morning, that this is coincidentally uh, most likely the, the earliest record that we have of the Lord's Supper. Because Paul's letter to the Corinthians almost certainly was written before the gospel accounts were written. So this is not, oh, well, that was Paul. That's just Paul said that. This is how Paul thought. No, it's more than that. And so Paul quotes Jesus himself when he says there in the latter part of verse 24, this is my body. Remember who? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the latter part of verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do, do we stop and think about who it is that did this, that God himself did this? Let me just remind you, I, I, I used Philippians chapter 2 a few weeks ago in talking about the importance of humility uh, within the body and, and how that, and, and our walk with Christ, the importance of that. But just read it in the context of, of the Lord's Supper we're talking about today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, who it is that did this for you and me. Not only remember who, but remember what. Remember what was done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, first part of verse 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Remember what was done. Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that was all of us, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Do do we stop and think about what was done there? That he took the penalty that we rightly deserve. This is the amazing thing, ladies and gentlemen. As as judge, God, after pronouncing, rightly judging and pronouncing judgment on us, that we were sinners, that that we had... violated his holy law that we had rebelled against him and after after uh, announcing the penalty of that sin literally being death itself 
God, the judge, the creator judge, stepped down from the bench and stepped into our place and took the penalty for our sin. He did that for us. We must never forget what was done at the cross. And that's part of what this is to represent, to remind us to never forget this memorial to the cost of what was done so that your sins could be lifted from you, so that my sins could be lifted from me, and so that we could actually be adopted into the family of God. I understand this is Christianity 101, but it's so Christianity 101 that we can sometimes lose the awe of the fact that God, God himself, would do what he did for us. Never forget who, always remember what, and always remember why. Romans chapter 5 says this, For if while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. 2 Corinthians 5, I read to you the first part of verse 21. Again, let me read the rest of it to you. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's, that's why. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the substitute for our sins. I I confess to you, all of these are, are important. Who and what and why, they're all important, but I confess to you, this is the one that, that stirs me the most. This is the one that, that, frankly, troubles me the most to ponder, to think about why. Why would God do this for me? We know theologically that God had no need. We know theologically that God was not lonely. We know theologically that God was not incomplete. We know that God had no need to to be the hero of the story, even though he is. God had no need to be worshipped. We know all of that, and yet still he would do this for me. Why? Why would God do this? And, and, the, and the only thing I can come up with after thinking about this a lot through the years, the only thing I can come up with is that it is simply an extension of the very nature of who God is. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of love that there ever could be. Never, ever, ever forget why he would do this. God himself did it. God himself hung on that cross. God himself had the sin of the world. You know, we, we live in sin, right? I, I, don't, I don't mean necessarily we're... You know what I'm saying? We all, we all understand the, that draw, that pull towards sin in our lives. We live in a culture that is saturated in sin, a, a, a culture that, that is quite comfortable and in fact in many cases celebrates sin. We, 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 that's the world, that's the life in which we exist. So it's almost impossible for us to comprehend what it would mean for the sinless Son of God to take on all of the sin of the world, to be heaped upon Him in some way in which I, I do not understand, but Scripture clearly teaches we can't even begin to comprehend what he went through and and on top of the of of the spiritual reality of the sin of the world placed upon him on, on top of that the reality that the only part of God's creation created in his image is the very part that rejected him rebelled against him, spit in his face, beat him to a point where he was virtually unrecognizable and then nailed him to that cross. Why? Why? I don't know that we can ever fully answer the question, but I can tell you we must never forget. It's the the cross. It's about the cross. It's about 
the price that was paid so that you could sit here today, if you know Christ as your Savior, you could sit here today in, in actual, literal relationship with the creator of the universe. And then there's one more that I need to get to that, that really Paul is, is honing in on, coming down to at the end there. There must be holiness in all. And I'm, the, he's talking about this in the context of the Lord's Supper. Listen to what he says in, in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. After examining himself, then, then he can eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If, I'm not, if I don't examine my own body, if I don't examine my own life and what's going on in my life, I'm bringing judgment on myself. If there is, is some type of continual, ongoing, unrepented sin in my life. Paul says, for this reason, many among you, I don't know how many that means, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a.k.a. died. They were dying. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. I'll stop there. But, but you get the point here. I think you get the point here. That this is, this is a serious matter and, and, and it shouldn't be treated flippantly. It shouldn't be treated casually. It shouldn't be treated any way like that. That, that, that there has to come this place where there, there's an understanding that you and I, ladies and gentlemen, here, here, you and I cannot compartmentalize our faith. We can't do it. The holiness of God will not allow it. We cannot decide, well, I just want to do this, or I'm going to live my this way, or, or I'll, you know, but, but, then, but then I'm going to have this relationship with, with God. Clearly, clearly, clearly this matters to God based on what's transpiring here. Because the Corinthians were bringing their carnality, they were bringing their flesh onto this holy ground. They, they, were, they, they did it under the guise of the love feast, but then they were abusing it and they were, they were doing it all to excess and they were leaving others out. And Paul tells the Corinthians that the recent uptick in the funeral home's business was due to the fact that they were bringing it into the church, bringing their carnality into the church and bring it to the very table that represented the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The very thing he did so that our sin could be removed from us, they, they were bringing sin too. And God is taking people out. Now, you might... Somebody might say, come on, come on. You're telling me God is going to make people sick. God is going to make people debilitated. God is going to actually kill people. He's actually going to let people die because of some action having to do with the Lord's Supper. I, I, come on, you, you're telling me that. I thought, I thought God was a God of love. You just told me God died for me. Uh, Joel Osteen has said God wants the best for me. So, so you, you, you just told me, yeah, come on, come on. I, I, I don't know if somebody feels that way. Maybe you're right. Maybe we, could, maybe we could ask the two oldest sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Abihu? Exactly. They brought, they brought, they brought strange fire before the Lord. They're, they're priests to the Lord God, and they brought strange fire. I don't have time to explain what that is, but I can sure show you the result. Leviticus chapter 10 
Verse 2, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. How about Uzzah? You remember that helpful guy? Uzzah? Uzzah's walking along one day, along beside a cart that's, that, uh, a cart that's carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Jews knew that they were not to ever touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was, it was holy. It was holy, and spe- it, was, it was God's signified God's presence and they weren't to touch the Ark of the Covenant and, and, Ab, and Uzzah's walking along beside the cart and whether they stepped in a pothole or whether they were going too fast or whether there was something happened with the cart that, that Uzzah thought that the, that the Ark of the Covenant was going to tip over. Now, you know, Uzzah maybe should have thought, you know, God's probably big enough to handle this, but he apparently thought that the Ark was going was to tip over and Uzzah reached out and he touched the Ark to, to steady it, to keep it from falling over. Second Samuel Chapter 6, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died by the ark of God. Now, somebody else might say, well, yeah, but come on, that's Old Testament. Everybody knows God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament. Everybody knows that, that God, you know, was much more judgmental in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's much more about love. In the New Testament, he's much more about grace. First, can I, let me just say this, because I've talked to people that actually have that, that concept. Can I just say, that is a heresy of the highest order, first off. I am the Lord God, I change not. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change, God does not develop, God does not grow. But, let's play the game. How about the New Testament? How about Ananias and Sapphira? You remember them? Acts chapter 5, they, they, they sold some land, and then they went before the church, and essentially, we, we gave all the money, we gave all the money to the church. And they hadn't. And God, through revelation, somehow lets Peter know that they haven't. And Peter confronts Ananias about it. And when Ananias hears the words, here it is, Acts chapter 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that about three hours later, his, his wife Ananias uh, comes in, or Sapphira comes in about three hours later, and, and Peter gives her the chance to come clean, to tell the truth. She doesn't. And she drops dead on the spot right where her husband did, and she's buried right beside him. Now, if you and I would be tempted to think, well, I, and if we, just get, if we just get honest for just a moment, but I, I don't like that. I don't like that God would, would do that. I don't, I don't like that God would act that way. Listen, can I, can I share this with you? He's not asking for your permission. He's not trying to win Mr. Congeniality. He's God, and He is holy, and His holiness matters. And I say to you that it is the very fact that He is holy that makes what we do here today so unbelievably spectacular. Holy God broke His holy body for you and for me. Holy God poured out His holy blood for you and me. It is is His holiness that makes His grace so amazing. Paul says that you can't compartmentalize your life. God is holy. This ground is holy. Our lives should be holy. Which, if you're part of Cross Culture Church, you know this. It doesn't mean that we never mess up. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. But it means that we're making sure that there's not, there's not an ongoing something in our life that God would not approve of. Let's just get to that. Paul's clear response, his clear answer to how you solve this problem is self-examination. 
It's, 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 you just gotta, there's got to be a self-examination. In fact, the word in verse 28, examine, the Greek word is dakamatso. Uh, according to, to uh, Patterson's commentary, it literally could be translated, let a man put himself on trial. You have to look. I have to look at my life. And it, and it, and it, and it doesn't matter what this person sees in my life or this person thinks in my life it only matters what god sees and thinks in my life and and in those innermost regions in those places in my life that i don't that i don't share at the church social i know where my life is and paul says to the corinthians and to us you've got to examine you've got to examine that stuff in your life and and here's what you need here's what you need to do with it first you got to recognize it you just, you got to recognize, you got to stop making excuses. You got to stop pretending it's not a problem. You got to stop acting like, oh, it's no big deal. If, if there's sin in your life, if there's something that God would not approve of in your life, something in your relationships, something in your sex life, something in your internet searches, something in your, in your, in, in your marital relationship with your spouse, something in your, in your conduct at this situation, something in your, in your whatever, you've got to recognize it. You got to say, no, this, this is sin in my life. I've let this come in. Maybe I didn't mean to. Maybe I did. Maybe I, maybe I, 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 but I've got to stop playing with this thing. I've got to recognize it. You've got to recognize it and you've got to repent of it. Which, by the way, doesn't mean just I'm sorry I did it. It means I'm so sorry I did it, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm actually going to turn, and y'all know this, metanoia, to turn and go in a new direction of my life. Oh, I won't get it right all the time. Oh, I'll, I know I'll still stumble. That's not an excuse to do that. I'm just telling you to repent and say, God, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, want to, I, want, I don't want to grieve your spirit. I don't want to offend your holiness. God, by your power, take this out of my life. I am turning away from it. I am willfully choosing to go in a new direction in my life. You recognize it. You repent of it. And you return to God's will and direction for your life. See, I promise you this. I promise you this from personal experience. If you repent of it, if you feel the the gravity of a situation and God says, no, Clay, that's not what I want for your life. You say, God, I'm so sorry, man. I don't do that anymore. I'm, I'm turning away from it. And that's it. You know what happens? That thing, that thing that drew me in, it's still there. And all of a sudden it's like, come on. Nobody will know. Nobody will, nobody will find out. Nobody will. Come on. You see, I just can't recognize that. I just can't repent of it. I've got, I've got to return to God's will and direction for my life. I've got to go in his direction, what he wants for my life, in, in, in whatever area. Which is why Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Modern translation, talk is cheap. If this is real, if you've, if you've come to Christ, if you're repentant of your sin and, you're, and, you're, and you've come to Christ, then come to Christ, follow Him. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or, as the very blunt James would put it, James chapter 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, fool themselves, and think, oh, I'm okay, I'm all right, I can come to this table, it's, it's no problem. Nobody knows what's going on in my life. Nobody knows I've done this situation. Nobody knows about this or, or that. And James says, you're fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. You might fool some people, but you're not fooling God. And this, all of this is in the context of the Lord's Supper. It's not just the Corinthians, is it? It's us. This is a memorial 
to the cost. This is the place where holy God paid the price for my sin. I must always remember it. Each time I approach it, and I must live my life as if this is a reality. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is holy ground. Because the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us of that event, it too becomes holy ground when we come to it. The Corinthians had turned it into an excuse for self-indulgement, and God dealt very harshly with them to show all of us that sinful practices cannot be trivialized. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for each of us to examine our lives and remove sinful practices that have no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross-culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.